Our scripture reading this evening is Acts 5, verses 12 through 42. Acts 5, 12 through 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they could not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in in this name, Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take what you are about to do with these men. Take care what you are about to do uh, with these men, for before these days, 
Theudas uh, rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and, it, and came to nothing. <clears throat> After him, Judas the Galileans rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. If For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So in these verses that we're going to look at this evening... We see the church continuing to grow as the apostles continue to preach Jesus and perform miracles, <clears throat> and we see a continuing and even an escalation of the persecution. Much of what Luke describes here we have seen before, and so I will try to focus on aspects of the passage that are, are unique to it. Verses 6 through 12 emphasize the miracles that the apostles performed. The description of these miracles reminds us of Jesus and his miracles that he performed with crowds flocking to him. And that connection makes sense because the book of Acts is about the continuing ministry of Jesus from his place in heaven through the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the miracles was to confirm the truth of the Apostles' message. In his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter had referred to Jesus as, quote, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul speaks of the miracles that he did in a similar way. He talks about the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So these signs and wonders, they perform the same function for us as they did for those who first witnessed them. They confirm for us also that the apostles were truly sent by Jesus and that their message was the message that Jesus had sent them to preach. The signs and the wonders also functioned as signs of the renewal of all things, that is, God's mission through Jesus Christ. They point forward to the time when all sickness and suffering will be over due to the saving work of Jesus Christ in conquering sin and death. Now, one of the odd things in this description of the miracles of the apostles is that the, the people, some of the people, were positioning their sick loved ones along the path that Peter was walking so that, quote, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
it's interesting that we read, we only read of this here. It's a very odd reference that is not repeated. There is something similar in uh, Paul's story told later on in, in the book of Acts, Acts 19, um, 11 and 12, we read, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Again, we only read that once and nowhere else. One commentator says about this, quote, There is always a, un, a strange, unknown quality about God's healing. I want to reflect about this with you for a while. I think that this points to God's freedom to work how and when he wills. God is free to perform miracles in one situation where Peter's shadow falls upon someone or in one other situation where a handkerchief that Paul had touched healed someone and then never used that method again as far as we know. We do know that these odd ways of healing appear only once and then never again. Now, we don't read of Jesus healing anyone through his shadow, through a, a handkerchief, although we do read of people being healed by reaching out and touching the hem of his garment. But in none of these cases did God use that method regularly. Very unlikely that Peter's shadow always healed people. And I doubt very much that Peter could turn that power on and off. And God doesn't feel the need to explain to us <clears throat> why he would, just in a few instances, heal people through Peter's shadow or through a handkerchief that Paul had touched and then never do that again. The point, I think, is that God is showing us that he works when he pleases and how he pleases. <clears throat> There's an unpredictability in what he does, at least in this area. John makes a similar point in John 3, 8, when he says of the Holy Spirit, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. The words, the wind blows where it wishes, emphasize the, the freedom with which the Holy Spirit works. There's something mysterious about the, the wind, and there's something mysterious about the work of the Holy Spirit. Many people hear the gospel, but not all who hear the gospel are born again. As God says to Moses in Exodus 33:19, he says to Moses, God does, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
And there's so many things like this. Why does God heal one person and not heal another? Why does God allow one person to get an incurable disease and die young and another person to live to a ripe old age? Why does God save one person and not another? There are so many questions like this. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is free in whom he heals, in how he heals. He is free in who who he saves and how he saves. Paul speaks of this in Romans 11.33 when he says of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And this strange story of God healing people when Peter's shadow fell upon them is just one instance of, just one illustration of God's inscrutable ways. But there's another side to this, and it's worth thinking about for a few minutes. Because there are also ways in which God is predictable. And that is where he has made promises. God maintains his freedom to heal whom he will and save whom he will. But there is a sense in which he voluntarily gives up his freedom when he makes promises. And because of that, we, we can be certain that if we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus, we will be saved. God is not free to reject those who repent and believe in Jesus because he has made promises to save those who do so. And by making promises, God has placed himself under obligation to save those who turn to him in faith. We cannot count on God to act in a certain way where he has not made promises, but we can count on him utterly to keep his promises. When God says whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life, he has made a commitment that we can be absolutely sure that he will keep. And that is the glorious flip side to God's mysterious ways in so many other areas. God does not promise us an easy life on this earth. He maintains his freedom to give us sickness or health or riches or poverty or suffering or relative ease. He maintains his freedom to save his elect and to pass by the rest. But he has committed himself to save those who turn to him, repent, and believe. He has committed himself to working everything together for our good in the light of eternity. Well, there's another part of this first section that I want to focus on for a moment. Luke describes the apostles and others meeting in Solomon's portico which was a part of the temple where the people could gather. And verse 13 says, 
None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And then it goes on in verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. These verses show different responses to the apostles and their message. Verse 13 is really quite fascinating. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So there were people who thought well of the apostles. They were not like the authorities who were trying to get the apostles to stop teaching about Jesus and the resurrection. These people, they thought well of the apostles. And yet, they dared not join the circle of believers. One of the things that was keeping them from joining the followers of Jesus was fear. They dared not join them. And that's contrasted here with believers who did join them, believers who were added to the Lord. The text doesn't say why some people did not dare to join the church. But there's so much about persecution in these early chapters of Acts that it's likely that they were afraid to become associated with Jesus because Jesus had been crucified and the apostles and the <clears throat> and, and <clears throat> the apostles because the authorities had commanded them to stop preaching and teaching about Jesus so just to just to be a member of a church involves receiving some degree of hatred and disdain from the world how much we actually experience depends on the time and place where we live. In the time described in Acts, in this early part of Acts, there was the fresh memory of Jesus' crucifixion. There was the opposition uh, by the authorities against the apostles. In the case of these people described here as not daring to join themselves to the community of the followers of Jesus... There was enough of a threat to ordinary believers that some who were attracted to the gospel were not willing to be identified with the followers of Jesus and the apostles. One of the basic costs of following Jesus is to be publicly identified with the church of Jesus Christ. In our case, so far in our experience, That cost has not been very high, but it is there and it is getting higher. More and more, the church that is faithful to Scripture is considered to be bigoted, intolerant, hateful, and backwards. The church and its teachings are not portrayed in a positive way in the media. To be a Christian today is to be identified with an institution, the church, which is ridiculed and despised. And to share in that 
is one of the basic costs of following Jesus. And there still may be people who are unwilling to pay even that basic cost. There may be people in the world, from the world who have some attraction to Jesus and the gospel, but who are not willing to actually join a church because of an unwillingness to be associated with a people who are despised and hated by so many in our society. But this passage makes it clear that being part of a church is a requirement for a true believer in Jesus. The text speaks of believers as those who were added to the Lord. It's clear that that means that they were added to the number of believers. They were baptized. They were added to the church. The Bible does not envision a believer in Jesus who is not added to the church. It can speak of salvation in terms of being added to the believers. It's one of the ways that we confess Christ before men. We are publicly identified with Jesus and his church. And that will, belo- that will involve belonging to a people who are often despised and vilified. This is one of the reasons that church membership is important. There are many, many reasons that church membership is important. But one of them is that we publicly identify with the people of God. And in this passage, Luke points to some in his day who did not dare to join the followers of Jesus. One other point in this first section is that many people were being saved. Verse 14, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, this is different from our experience and the experience of many churches through the ages. What we tend to see is covenant children coming to faith as they are nurtured in the gospel and a small number of people from the world being converted here and there. This is, in no doubt, this is partly due to our sinful lack of zeal in bringing the gospel to others. But it's also in part because of the sovereignty of God and in outpouring of his Holy Spirit. There are times and places in the history of the church when the Holy Spirit is poured out in an unusually powerful way. And believers are more on fire for the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is unusually blessed so that large number of people are saved. This phenomenon is called, sometimes called a revival. And that word can be used in different ways, of course. Sometimes it's used of something that man produces, which is not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about and what is described here in this passage comes about through prayer. And it is a sovereign, unusual outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is something that we should pray for. We can be grateful and we ought to be grateful for God's steady work in building his church 
through the salvation of covenant children. And whenever a, a person who was lost comes to faith and uh, joins the church, and we should be continue to be involved in and support the mission of the church when the number being saved is not large. But at the same time, a passage like this should encourage us to pray for more, for an outpouring of God's Spirit, so that we are revived and our zeal for the spread of the gospel is renewed and a large and for a large number of sinners to be saved by grace and added to the church. <clears throat> the fact that God has done such things in the past encourages us to pray that he might bring revival again uh, in our part of the world. Now we move to the second part of the text, which is Luke's account of the apostles being arrested. <clears throat> so the leaders of the Jews had forbidden Peter and the apostles to preach about Jesus and the resurrection, and Peter and the rest of the apostles had ignored that prohibition. The verses that we have just looked at chapter 5, 12 through 16, they describe the apostles doing signs and wonders, preaching in the temple with many people being healed and being added to the church. <clears throat> so what was happening was the, the opposite of what the Jewish leaders wanted to happen. They had killed Jesus because they wanted to stop him from gathering a large number of followers. They had commanded the apostles to stop preaching about Jesus and that he had risen from the dead for this very same reason. They wanted to stop them from gathering a large number of followers. But the apostles were continuing to preach publicly and the number of converts to Jesus was increasing rapidly. And so the high priest and his fellow leaders, they <coughs> arrested the apostles and put them in prison. But they didn't stay in prison very long. An angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison and set the apostles free and told them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. So the next day, the Jewish leaders came together. They sent the officers to the prison to get the apostles but the apostles were not there. The doors were locked, the guards were in place, but the apostles were not there. <clears throat> and when the, when the officers came back to the council meeting and told the counselors that the apostles were not in prison, somebody else came into the room and said, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple preaching to the people. And so the captain and his officers went to the temple and brought the apostles before the council meeting. The high priest told them, We strictly charged you not to preach in his name. Yet you, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And that's when Peter said, We must obey God rather than man and proceeded to take the opportunity to preach Jesus to the high priests and, and his buddies there. Now what is clear from this passage is that obeying God rather than man in this situation meant preaching about Jesus, even though the authorities had told the apostles to stop preaching about Jesus. <clears throat> in this case, <clears throat> the apostles had a specific word from the angel 
who had gotten them out of prison. Go and stand in the temple and preach to the people all the words of life. Now what's interesting in this situation is that the apostles were specifically told to preach publicly in the temple after the authorities had commanded them not to. And that raises the question of whether every Christian is called to be as bold and as provocative as the apostles were in this situation. Was there something unique in this situation that the apostles were in? Or is it permissible for believers to witness to the gospel in less public ways, in situations where they have been prohibited from preaching? For instance, does this passage mean that all believers in Iran must be preaching the gospel at every street corner, even though they know that doing so will cost them their lives? Is what the apostles is what they did here the only way to be faithful to the church's calling to witness for Jesus? <clears throat> I think we can safely say that Luke's purpose in telling the story is not to say that all believers must always be as in your face as the apostles were in this situation. What we have here is descriptive, not prescriptive. These are examples. They are not commands. Certainly, Luke is holding the apostles up in a positive way with their spirit-given boldness to preach the gospel in the face of the prohibitions of the authorities. But that does not mean that he is saying to all Christians everywhere... This is what you must always do in every situation. So here you have an apostle, or the apostles, almost asking to be arrested. But there are other examples in Scripture where believers flee or hide to avoid arrest and being punished by the authorities. So you have the example of Paul. Shortly after he was converted... Shortly after he was converted, he began preaching in Damascus. And because of that, the Jews were plotting to kill him, and Paul hid. And in the night, some of his Christian friends helped him escape the city by lowering him over the wall in a basket. And something similar happened in Thessalonica. Paul preached there. People were saved. The Jews formed a mob, but Paul was hidden and then sent away by night so that he could go and preach in another place. What we see in these examples is Paul taking risks in order to preach the gospel, and he certainly was arrested and beaten and imprisoned and finally martyred, but he did try to avoid arrest, being arrested or beaten by a mob by fleeing the scene so that he could continue his preaching elsewhere. One other example is Acts <clears throat> Acts 8, 1 through 4. 
This is where church members were being arrested and thrown in prison. Uh, this happened before Saul was converted and became Paul. And Saul was involved, going from house to house and dragging men and women to prison. And those who are not arrested, they flee, they fled. The text says that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And it also says that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So here you have church members fleeing persecution, but at the same time they're described as preaching the word as they fled to different places. In applying the persecution described in the book of Acts, we need to understand that there has been <clears throat> a wide range in the severity of persecution in the history of the church, just as there is a wide range in the severity of the persecution in our time as well. We do have what Paul's teaching in 2 Timothy 3.12, where he writes, Indeed, all of you who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the definition of persecution in the Bible ranges from martyrdom on one hand to being mocked and scorned on the other. There, have been no, there is no question that there have been many faithful believers in New Testament times and still today who may have been scorned by some of the ungodly people around them but who have not experienced more than that in terms of persecution. This story of the apostles boldly refusing to stop preaching Jesus, and then after they were beaten, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, this story is meant to show us how the Holy Spirit gave great courage and zeal to the apostles so that the gospel continued to be preached and the church continued to grow in spite of the opposition against it. And stories like this are meant to inspire us, but also to convict us of the weakness of our love for Christ and the passion, the weakness of our passion for the spread of the gospel. We can be thankful that we still have religious freedom and that most of us have experienced very little in the way of persecution. But at the same time, when we read of the courage and the zeal of the apostles in this story, most of us must confess that we are far behind them in terms of courage and zeal. If we were more like them, we would certainly experience more opposition from the world, depending on our circumstances. But even apart from persecution, <clears throat> the kind of zeal that we see displayed by the apostles in this passage would make us more passionate for missions and more passionate in prayer for the kingdom and for everyday witness and forgiving. The zeal of the apostles in this story exposes the weakness of our zeal and passion for the kingdom. 
It is a call to repentance for us, a call to seek first the kingdom of God, a call to love Jesus with all our hearts and our neighbor as ourselves. But at the same time, this should not drive us to despair. We must remember that the gospel that the apostles were so passionate to preach is the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, we can live with joy and hope because we are not accepted through our works, but because of Jesus' life and death in our place. There is a wide range among true believers as far as sanctification is concerned. And we have the great comfort and encouragement that Jesus does not break the bruised reed or quench the smoldering wick. But at the same time, the same time, those who are forgiven and accepted in Christ will be constantly repenting. The gospel calls us to repentance, and the Holy Spirit enables both repentance and faith, and so a true believer cannot be satisfied with their level of zeal and passion for Jesus and the gospel. Jesus continues to call us to repentance. The Word of God calls us to grow toward maturity in Christ. And one of the ways that it does that is through examples of believers who are more advanced than we are, like the apostles in this passage. Not every believer in their day was as zealous as they were either. But their example and their preaching, by their example and their preaching, they called believers to strive to grow in zeal and love and in passion for Christ. It's easy to be discouraged if we read of the apostles in this passage and are reminded of how unlike them we are. And we should be convicted, but that should drive us to Christ again for forgiveness and also for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we might grow to be more like them, which is to be more like Christ. They were not able to do what they did in their own strength. They were enabled by the Holy Spirit, and that same Holy Spirit dwells in us if we are trusting in Christ. And by His power and all the other resources that God has given us for growth, we can continue to make progress. So let's look at the zeal of the apostles in this passage and be inspired. The story of their courage is given not to discourage us, but to encourage us because the same Jesus who strengthened them by his spirit will also grant growth to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for this passage and for the different things that we could think about. We do thank you that uh, you reveal yourself to us as a God who is uh, free to act as you please, to, <clears throat> to save or not to save, to heal and not to save, to act in ways that are mysterious to us. 
And we treasure that freedom. We treasure that sovereignty of yours. But we also are amazed that you have, that you have bound yourself to us. You have restricted yourself voluntarily by making promises and covenants to us so that we can know for certain that if we believe in you and believe in Jesus, we will be saved. And we are so grateful that there is so much that you have revealed yourself, about which you have revealed yourself in your word, that uh, <clears throat> gives us the confidence to know that uh, you will hear us when we pray to you, you will save us when we flee to you, because you have promised to do so. Lord, we thank you <clears throat> for the, the courage and the zeal that we see in this chapter in Peter and the other apostles, how they were willing to stand up before the authorities who told them to stop preaching the gospel, how they could even say that they were rejoicing to uh, be able to suffer in your name. And Lord, when we look at that zeal, we realize that we are a long way from that. And we pray that you would help us to, to humble ourselves, to confess our sins, but also to cling to Jesus and to seek in him to grow so that we may become more like them and more like Jesus. Lord, will you grant to us hearts that are full of love to you and zeal, uh, for your kingdom. We pray that your kingdom may come. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.